From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, open-angle glaucoma and diabetes. We had about 41,000 women uh, who were eligible for the study. But by the time the study was over, ultimately 76,318 women uh, contributed person time to the study. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Lou Pasquale is on the Alcon Speakers Bureau. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. The relationship between diabetes and open-angle glaucoma is complicated and wrought with contradictions. On one hand, diabetes seems to be a risk factor for glaucoma. On the other, diabetes seems to reduce the risk of conversion from ocular hypertension to glaucoma. Layer on to this, the fact that diabetes is associated with a number of comorbidities which may also influence glaucoma risk. Clearly, some elucidation is required. To part the clouds for us, we have Lou Pasquale, who recently published results of a study examining the relationship between diabetes and glaucoma. What do we know about the relationship between diabetes and open-angle glaucoma? It's been known in general that diabetics without glaucoma tend to have higher intraocular pressures than people who are non-diabetics and don't have glaucoma. So among people without glaucoma, okay, diabetics just tend to run slightly higher pressures than non-diabetics in population-based studies. A couple of them had shown that. There had been a whole host of cross-sectional population-based studies looking at the relationship between diabetes and primary open-angle glaucoma. Some studies suggested that there was a positive association, and other studies were, were a dead null. But someone had published a meta-analysis of all of those studies, and when they were all taken in aggregate, it suggested that diabetes was associated with about a 1.5-fold increased risk of primary open-angle glaucoma. There was one population-based prospective study that looked at the same thing, and they also found about a 1.5-fold increased risk of glaucoma among diabetics. However, the result was a, a borderline statistical significance. Have these previous studies segregated diabetes into type 1 and type 2? No, they did not. They treated diabetes as a rather simplistic exposure, namely just, you know, diabetes, not whether it was type 1 or type 2. Why should diabetes affect glaucoma risk? By, by what mechanism might diabetes affect glaucoma? Well, you know, the in, insulin 
resistance could contribute to trabecular meshwork dysfunction. And, you know, that's one possible mechanism, especially when you take into account that diabetics without glaucoma have higher pressure than non-diabetics without glaucoma. So that's, that's one possible mechanism, although no one is quite sure how that might work. But there were some, there is one group that looked at the effect of elevated glucose on trabecular meshwork cells in vitro and found that when, when they added glucose to trabecular meshwork cells, there was increased fibronectin deposition and presumably that might reduce outflow facility and increase intraocular pressure. But there's been surprisingly little research on the biomarkers of insulin resistance and their effect on the trabecular meshwork. What is the Nurses Health Study? The Nurses Health Study started in 1976 when 121,000 nurses who were registered in various places throughout the United States enrolled in a study about lifestyle habits and the relationship of those lifestyle habits with chronic disease. They were particularly interested in heart disease and they were particularly interested in cancer, particularly breast cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, and things of that sort. That was the genesis of the study and what it's all about. Can I have you describe the design of this study? Sure. Basically, these nurses dutifully filled out surveys every two years describing their lifestyle behaviors, what they ate, what they drank, how much they exercised, what their body weight was, what medications that they were on, what chronic diseases that they were developing. They did this every two years from 1976 on forward. And we began the study with regard to glaucoma starting in 1980 because that's when the nurses started filling out surveys uh, specifically about their diet. And initially, we were interested in the relationship with diet and glaucoma and have a few publications on that that we reference in the paper. And uh, basically, what we did was we started asking people in 1990 whether or not they had eye examinations. And actually, in 1986, we started asking people about whether or not they had glaucoma. And when the nurse said self-reported a diagnosis of glaucoma, what we did was we sent back a quick questionnaire to the diagnosing physician, asking them whether they agreed that the patient had primary open-angle glaucoma. And if they said yes, we asked them for their medical records as well as the visual fields. And then what I did, and believe me, I've gone through thousands of charts, was review these charts in a systematic fashion. And I would look for slip lamp evidence that there was no exfoliation or trauma or uveitis or angle closure glaucoma. And I would look for evidence of gonioscopy being performed. And if gonioscopy wasn't done, I looked for evidence that at least the pupils were dilated and there was no untoward sequelae. Then I looked at the visual fields and I looked at them in a systematic fashion 
and the visual fields had to be reliable and we had certain criteria for what a reliable visual field was. Patients had to have fixation loss less than 33%, false positives and false negative rates less than 20% if they had a Humphrey visual field. And we used similar type of criteria for other automated perimetry. And we looked for reproducible defects that were consistent with glaucoma. And then we had to ascertain and confirm a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Now, all along, the nurses are reporting to us whether or not they've been told by their primary doctor that they had diabetes. If they said yes, they were sent another questionnaire that was designed based upon the National Diabetes Data Group up until 1997. And then after that, we used more revised criteria from the American Diabetes Association to confirm that they had type 2 diabetes. And then we had done a validation study in the past indicating that women who actually self-reported diabetes, that when we looked at medical records and they filled out the questionnaire that said that they had type 2 diabetes, that when we looked at the medical records, it confirmed that they were indeed a case of type 2 diabetes. So we had used this approach to ascertain diabetes and to identify our cases of open-angle glaucoma. How many women participated in this study? The number changes as you go along because we, at baseline, only wanted to include women who were at least 40 years old or older and were free of glaucoma at baseline. Because some of the women were younger than that, they were allowed to contribute person time later on in the course of the study. So in 1980, we had about 41,000 women who were eligible for the study. But by the time the study was over, ultimately 76,318 women contributed person time to the study. What was the duration of the follow-up? We went from 1980 to year 2000. How was glaucoma defined for the purpose of this study? For the purposes of this study, the definition of glaucoma hinged upon the presence of a visual field defect that was consistent with glaucoma on a reliable field that could be confirmed on at least one subsequent visual field that was also reliable and showed a defect in the same territory of the visual field. We did not use an intraocular pressure in our definition of glaucoma and we could not rely upon optic nerve criteria because remember, these women are being examined by physicians throughout the country, and there's some variability in the charts in terms of the documentation of the optic nerve criteria. Some are quite good and have you know, the most sophisticated neuroimaging techniques documented in the chart, and others have drawings which are also can be quite good, but it's hard for us to ascertain on an objective basis, exactly what the cup disc ratio might be, et cetera. So we had to rely on a visual field criteria. Now, with that said, you know, a visual field change is a very important endpoint from a public health point of view. And so that we feel, you know, that that's a reasonable definition given the fact that our patients are 
coming from all over the place and it would not be feasible for us to sort of get a standardized optic nerve documentation on all of them. What were the demographics of the patients? That's a good question because that comes up a lot and it's important to remember that in the context of what were what this the study result is. These are predominantly white uh, patients. Only 1% are a- of African ancestry and only about 1% are Latinos. And again, this reflects the uh, demographics of the women who are in the nursing profession at the time the study started. Lou, what were your results? Okay, so the main finding was that there was about a 1.8-fold increased risk of developing primary open-angle glaucoma among people with type 2 diabetes. That was the main finding of the study. Since increased body mass is a risk factor for diabetes, is body mass index a risk factor by itself for glaucoma? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and it was something we really zeroed in on in this paper. As it turns out, there, there is one clinic-based study that I'm aware of that actually found a modest inverse relationship between body mass index and primary open-angle glaucoma. I have subsequently learned from looking at the literature again that Christina Lesky had reported this when she went to Barbados, and she had also seen an inverse relationship between body mass index and primary open-angle glaucoma among a predominantly African population in the Caribbean. And so this is important because when we are reporting our results, we find that we, we, when we provide an age, when we calculate an age-adjusted relative risk for the association between type 2 diabetes and primary open-angle glaucoma, that risk is 1.5. But when we do a multivariable relative risk, controlling for, multiple, for um, many covariates that might be related to either glaucoma or to diabetes, we find that the multivariate relative risk is 1.8. We actually discovered that most of the confounding that resulted from that risk going from 1.5 to 1.8 is really related to controlling for body mass index. We found in our population that there was an inverse relationship between body mass index and primary open angle glaucoma. And so, in other words, those who were heavier were at slightly reduced risk of getting glaucoma than those who were leaner. We did do a test for interaction, and we really actually, however, we didn't see an interaction between body mass index and type 2 diabetes in dictating the risk of primary open-angle glaucoma, but we did see this inverse relationship, and it was surprising for us to see. Since diabetics are asked to undergo routine eye exams, wouldn't glaucoma be more likely to be detected in diabetics than non-diabetics? Yes, detection bias was something that we had to address head-on in this type of a study and could have created a false positive association between type 2 diabetes and primary open-angle glaucoma. And it's particularly important in a study like this where women are not obligated 
to get an eye exam. And glaucoma is an insidious disease with no symptoms that's actually picked up on a routine eye examination. So this is very much like the myopia story where myopes are more likely to come to an ophthalmologist and therefore more likely to be detected for glaucoma and giving you a false sense that myopia is related to glaucoma when a look at an entire population at risk may not find a similar association. By the way, a similar association has been found in population-based studies. But getting back to this question, we did do everything in our power to evaluate this detection bias issue. First, we limited our analysis to women who were reporting eye examinations. So women who were not reporting eye examinations through any two-year questionnaire cycle were not contributing person time to the analysis. Furthermore, we conducted an analysis among women who were consistently reporting eye examinations from one cycle to the next. And we continued to see a positive relationship between type 2 diabetes and primary open angle glaucoma. Now, this doesn't rule out the fact that diabetics were getting more careful eye examinations than non-diabetics and therefore were more likely to be detected. So I also did the following. I got the, uh, I got the charts on every case that had type 2 diabetes, and I looked for the reason why they actually came to the eye doctor. And, of course, if you do that and you're seeing, well, 70% are coming because they're saying, gee, doc, I'm worried. I've I just been told I have diabetes. I want to have my eyes examined. Then you might say, aha, detection bias explains Dr. Pasquale's findings. And in fact, I found the, the opposite. I only found that in 16% of cases, that was the case. The majority of people were being detected on routine exams or because someone, an optometrist or somewhere, found a high pressure and that's why they were coming in. In other words, the patients weren't, these cases of diabetics were not coming to detection uh, because of concerns about diabetes. They were coming to detection because of concerns about elevated intraocular pressure. That is the best that you know, we can do. Of course, one could still say that there's a certain amount of detection bias in the study with this design, but we don't think that detection bias explains, you know, completely the relationship that we're seeing. The ocular hypertension treatment study, the OATS study, found a reduced risk of conversion from ocular hypertension to glaucoma in diabetics. And I wonder how that jibes with, with your findings. One possibility is that since only diabetics without retinopathy were included in OATS, perhaps these patients were more healthy or, or living a, a, a more healthy lifestyle than the non-diabetics in OATS. Yeah, that's a great question. And it was the first thing that I thought of when I was writing the discussion for this paper. And many people are confused about the finding of diabetes being protective for the conversion from ocular hypertension to primary open angle glaucoma, and no clear hypotheses have come up to try to explain why this might be the case. What you bring up is one possibility 
that in oats, if you had any evidence of diabetic retinopathy, you were not included in the study. And we did allow patients with diabetic retinopathy to contribute person time to our analysis. So that's one possibility. A second possibility is that oats is not a true population-based sample. It is a enriched sample of people with elevated intraocular pressure. And the risk factors you find in a population like that might be entirely different than you might find in a population-based sample where only a minority of people have elevated intraocular pressure. In fact, in our cohort, only about 3% have ocular hypertension. But there's a third possibility that I find intriguing, and, and it goes as follows. It may be, uh, we need to remember the BMI story now. BMI being body mass index. That's right. And the OAT study, they did not measure body mass index. And as you correctly pointed out, and we, we see this all the time, that type 2 diabetics tend to be more overweight than people who do not have diabetes. And what they may be seeing is confounding for body mass index and that the protective effect may not be from diabetes. It may be from people who are being obese or overweight. That is maybe what's protecting them from converting from ocular hypertension to primary open angle glaucoma. Now, this is purely speculative on my part. One might have to go back and find out who the diabetics were in OATS and actually measure their body mass index and see if this pans out. But confounding by body mass index is a third potential explanation for why they saw this protective effect for diabetes. It may be a surrogate for uh, protection for elevated body mass index. Back at the start of this interview, you mentioned some pathophysiologic reasons that diabetes might be linked to glaucoma. If some pathophysiological underpinning does exist, why was there no increase in risk in people who had diabetes longer? Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do know what you're saying, and it's one of the other reasons why you need, we need to be a little bit cautious with our results because, in point of fact, you should see an increasing strength of the relationship over time, and, and we did not. And, you know, one potential explanation is, is that our population is fairly healthy, and we, the prevalence, in fact, the prevalence of diabetes in this population was only about 3%, and the prevalence in, the, in other populations is a, is a little bit higher. You know, I hear numbers about 5 to 6% of the population in the U.S. has di- type 2 diabetes. So the prevalence may be a little bit low, and we may have lacked the power to actually see the positive association increase with increasing duration. Another possibility is that perhaps the treatment for type 2 diabetes helps to ameliorate the relationship over time, but there isn't any other good explanation that I can think of. I will say that I noticed that at Arvo, Dr. Varmer was reporting about the relationship between, between diabetes and primary open angle glaucoma among Latinos. And he actually did see a strong relationship between type 2 diabetes and primary open angle glaucoma among those who had type 2 diabetes for 10 years or more. So, 
you know, again, we, I, it, it could be a lack of power or a treatment effect. I'm not 100% sure. Is there any reason to suspect that these findings are specific to women? There's no reason to think, of, think that a priori. But I would, you know, again, would like to see confirmation of this in men. I don't see any gender-specific issues in terms of biological mechanisms as to why that might be the case. How do your findings compare with those of other researchers? It's very interesting. It's strikingly consistent. The age-adjusted relative risk that we report is strikingly similar to the age-adjusted relative risk reported in the meta-analysis of all the prior studies on the relationship between type 2 diabetes and primary open-angle glaucoma. And in addition, it was very similar to the age-adjusted relative risk reported in that one prospective study from England. And so it, overall, you know, the evidence is mounting that type 2 diabetes is a risk factor for glaucoma. When you think about the fact that diabetics have higher pressures than non-diabetics, that the meta-analysis of the prior work seems to indicate that type 2 diabetes is related to primary open-angle glaucoma. We found similar results that they did in age-adjusted analysis, and we just simply have found stronger results when we control for other covariates that we're not controlled for in other studies. Lou, have these findings played any role in your own practice? Is there anything that you do differently now because of the results of the study or, or anything that you look for differently? Yes, that's a great question. And what I've learned is, is that diabetes is, is a complex disease. And it's not so simple to say, oh, diabetes is a risk factor for glaucoma or not. You have to, first of all, you have to realize that there is type 1 diabetes and there's type 2 diabetes. And that among type 2 diabetes, there are the lean diabetics who, despite doing everything the doctor tells them to do, they're still struggling to get their blood sugars under control. And then there's this other group that seems to have a reversible problem with glucose tolerance, that if they simply lost some weight or, changed, or exercised a little bit more, they would get their diabetes under, under control. So that, that's the... That's the first thing that I've learned about this process. And so simply to say you're a diabetic that increases your risk or not is really not the right way to look at, at a patient. So I'm, I'm careful in when I'm looking at my uh, patients who might have glaucoma and report diabetes to try to distinguish whether it's type 1 or type 2 and to, to learn about whether or not just sort of eyeball their body habitus and see if they're a leaner type 2 diabetic versus a heavier type 2 diabetic in terms of trying to assess the risk. I, I have become, I guess, my bias, and, and it's my bias at this point, is that a type 2 diabetic who's, who's somewhat lean is someone I'm, I'm more concerned about and if they have a pressure of 24 or 25, even if they've got a full visual field and that their, their risk might, might be high for going on to get glaucoma. So it, it, it has affected my thinking in that way. Lou, is there anything that you'd like to add or anything that you feel that I might have left out? I guess one thing that I would emphasize that may not have been emphasized in the questioning so far is that what we linked was 
type 2 diabetes to newly diagnosed primary open angle glaucoma cases. So in 1980, and that's, I, I, I failed to emphasize this, people who had, glaucoma, who had reported glaucoma at baseline when the study started were excluded from analysis. And only those who were free of glaucoma at baseline were allowed to contribute person time from 1980 on forward. So it's important to emphasize that we link type 2 diabetes to newly diagnosed primary open angle glaucoma cases. One other thing on the cautionary sign that I think we didn't cover was that, you know, we know, we all know that African heritage is a strong risk factor for primary open angle glaucoma. And we don't know if this if this study is actually applicable to people of Latino heritage and people of African descent. So we need to draw a cautionary note there. Those were the main things. And one other, one other thing I would say is that, you know, what I hope that this work might do for the basic science researchers is patients ask every day the following question. Well, doctor, you know, you told me my pressure's high. You just put that lens on the surface of my eye to look at my drainage angle, which, you know, wasn't the most comfortable thing in the world, but I can live with it. And you said that my drainage angle is open, so why does my pressure go up? And our answer is, you know, quite frankly, we don't know why your pressure goes up. And so perhaps thinking more about the biomarkers of insulin resistance and how they could lead to trabecular meshwork dysfunction might be an avenue into discovering why intraocular pressure increases in glaucoma and could in the future you know, lead to more rational treatments because we'll learn more about what the pathologic targets are in the meshwork that actually cause the pressure to go up. I hope that maybe we might, you know, can move in that direction. Lou Pasquale, thank you very much. Thank you. Lou Pasquale is co-director of the Glaucoma Service at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary and assistant professor of ophthalmology at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Pasquale is also research director of the Boston VA Ocular Telehealth Center. His paper, Prospective Study of Type 2 Diabetes Mellitus and Risk of Primary Open-Angle Glaucoma in Women, appears in the July 2006 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Pasquale or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.